Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show, everybody. Today is Friday, January 19th, 2018. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have Gabby, Elliot, Doug, Tiffany, and Erica. Hey, guys. Hi. Hello. Hello. Hey, Hello. Crew. That's awesome. Nice. So, <laughs> we have a, uh, a unique topic today. Billie Jean's not my lover, and neither is genetic determinism. <laughs> uh, now, if you're listening and not looking at our page, uh, Billy Jean is G-E-N-E, so there's the pun. <laughs> there you have it. <laughs> that took us like an hour to come up with, and we were really happy with it. And for those who don't know, that's a Michael Jackson thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Get it? Yeah, yeah. Cool story, bro. <laughs> but genetic determinism in and of itself uh, is really fascinating topic, so we wanted to talk about that today. Uh, it's generally the theory that genes have a privileged level of causation for a number of diseases, and therefore that they have a special status uh, in biology. Um, so there are camps of you know researchers, doctors, scientists who are saying, like ascribing everything to genetic determinism, uh, and some people that describe nothing to it. And I think, as with anything, we can strike a balance in the middle. So that's uh, a simple way to say it, we just go ahead and end the show, but it's worth talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what we wanted to kind of like dive into a little bit. So um, I guess, you know, I, you always hear the thing, I guess that when you talk to people, my, my grandfather, you know, had, uh, had cancer uh, or my, my grandmother, you know, had uh, liver disease or something like that. And so I'm genetically pre- predisposed to it. And it's like mm. a, a kind of a common understanding about things. But, uh, you know, exactly how important is that? You know, can you overcome that genetic uh, linkage, the causal linkage? Is the causal linkage even there? Uh, You know, is it like look like it's there, but we think it's something else? Um, You know, it's it's a pretty complex issue. So I guess for to start our discussion, we're going to defer to our doctor and ask Gabby what you think. (laughs) (laughs) What (laughs) What do you think? On the spot. What, uh, what, what do, you, do I think? I, I mean, what do you think about the idea of, um, you know, genes determining disease? Do you think that that's the leading uh, cause, that that's the number one thing that you should look at? Well, that's what they consider the holy grail, but uh, no, it's not like it doesn't quite work like that. Even like um, genetic determinism, like that was thought to be like written in stone, like cystic fibrosis. Um, yeah, some people can have the gene for that, but they will, it will not get activated due to environmental factors or other, you know, other factors. It will stay more or less silent, you know, and, uh, it could be even reversible anyway. Sure. Mm. Well, (laughs) Well, I'm I'm not a doctor and I don't play one on TV, (laughs) (laughs) But there are some diseases, like uh, Gabby just mentioned, cystic fibrosis, but even that can be corrected with some nutritional, if you correct some nutritional deficiencies, it can ease Mm. the symptoms or completely, you know, not activate the gene. But there are diseases like uh, Down syndrome or sickle Mm. cell or progeria, hemophilia, Mm. and some other ones that are caused by faulty genes. Mm. So we can't say that. There is no connection between genes and illness, but I think what scientists are trying to make that link 
uh, between genes and more common ailments because those other ones I just mentioned are relatively rare, but they're trying to link genes, faulty genes to things like diabetes and heart disease and cancer. And they really can't find any definitive link between a gene and those diseases, but they're trying their damnedest. Yeah. And it's fine. I mean, you know, genetic determinism has kind of gone way too far. I think like I was reading a headline that even said that genes may determine the time of your loss of virginity. So when you actually lose your virginity, genes are responsible for that. And it's like, you know, they're talking about the homosexual gene and the transgender gene and all these kinds of things. And it's like, it's, it's kind of like they, there, there's this, this mode of thinking where it's like the, the genes are the absolute blueprint for who you are as a person and everything can be attributed to those genes. So it's like a complete, like, you know, there's no free will. You are completely 100%. Every, every thought that goes through your head is because of your genes or every disease that you get or all these different kinds of things are all genetic in basis. And I think that Tiff's right that a lot of people are trying to really fit that square peg into the round hole on a lot of these things um, because I think it, I mean, as we're going to get into, it's actually a lot more complicated than that. It's interesting that they do remove free will completely out of the equation. Like, you know, it's Mm -hmm. completely materialistic and cause and effect and, yeah, a close system. it, It makes people victims like they can't do Mm. anything it removes Mm. all of their power all of their ability to change whatever is happening to their bodies like they have they have no recourse really Mm -hmm. just blame it it on the genes yeah it's just my i got poor genes so they don't have to take any personal responsibility for what's going on with them sure yeah i think a big part of that you, you really see that with the um the uh what was i gonna say went blank okay yeah the the whole cholesterol thing like i think uh a lot of people like you know that has even been ascribed to being a genetic factor and you know in some cases i think it is like you know if you've got that uh familial hypercholesterolemia but i think in a lot of other cases they're kind of like oh you know it's just the genes you know you look at the draw you got so there's no point in like you know trying to do anything other than control it with statins you just got high cholesterol, so you're predisposed to it. Sorry. Yeah. It's kind of a paradox, though, um, because on the one hand, there's this whole notion that everything is is determined by one's genetics, but then on the other hand, they blame many of these diseases on saturated fats. So it's like, mm. how can you have both? You can't have both. Either it's the diet or it's completely the genes. Or you know they yeah. don't accept that it's it might be nuanced, you know it's it's mm-hmm. it's it's all one or the other. It it seems as though there's some sort of cognitive dissonance going on there, somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Should we bring up Angelina Jolie? Yes. Sure. You can't go this whole show without mentioning her. Well, anyway, yeah. I think this was a few years ago, maybe 2013. She had her breasts removed, her ovaries removed. Her fallopian tubes removed because she had the BRCA, I think that's it. Well, the breast cancer gene mutation. And I think her mother died of ovarian cancer or something. So anyway, I guess she and her doctors, I'm sure it came from her doctors though, 
they thought it would be a good idea for her to have her female parts removed. And it turns out that this faulty breast cancer gene really doesn't have any kind of influence on whether if you're diagnosed with breast cancer, whether you'll survive or not. Mm. Yeah, that was the new Lancet study, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They found that actually mutation carriers presenting with a triple negative breast cancer marker may have improved survival during the first few years after diagnosis compared with non-carriers mm. of the BRCA mutation. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, so, I mean, you know, that's a, somebody with a lot of money doing something drastic <laughs> in my mind, uh, honestly. I it mean, you know, put that. a lot of people. Yeah. 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 Anyone can put, do this. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I was going to say, I think, I think that maybe she was sort of encouraged to do it. Like maybe they needed uh, a poster person for, uh, for, yeah, for having, uh, you know, expensive surgeries. It's like, well, how can we increase the number of uh, double mastectomies that we're doing? Oh, I know. Let's uh, get Angelina Jolie out there promoting it as a good thing to do. (laughs) Well, Mel Gibson is running around right now talking about stem cells. And Is like, yeah, um, you know, so, and it's just one of those things. I mean, it, I think stem cells are interesting, but it's weird when you tie it to a celebrity. But in this case, with the Angelina Jolie case, I mean, if you put that in the context of your average show, they can afford that. You okay. know, neither would they be approved for it by their insurance, you know, so it's not a, it's not something that people would, they're going to live their rest of their life in, in fear. I think that's, you know, and that's where Angelina Jolie was, but she can, you know, she can quell her fears by cutting off a bunch of stuff. Um, but, yeah. you know, when, when people come to the, they live their life, like I've, I know people like this who talk about all the time, oh, my grandmother had this or my father had that. And so, you know, from the time they discover that, say in their teens or their 20s, for the rest of their life, that's in the back of their head. And it's mm-hmm. a constant fear, you know, and it's like, I, I would personally, I know this sounds like a stretch, but I think that fear alone would be enough to give you a disease. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I think so too. Well, when you go to a doctor's office and you fill out the initial paperwork, they always ask you about your familial history. Like, did your mother or father or grandparents have this or that disease? And people check yes or no or whatever. And I've had people come into the place where I work and constantly want to get this test or that test because their father had some disease and they want to make sure that they don't get it. And the doctors will test them for it. But yeah. I mean, what difference does that make, really? I mean, uh, there was one article I read that if you, the benefits of knowing what your genetic makeup is, is very limited. And the risk Mm. prediction is only like a measly one to three percent. And even if you do know that, you know, there's not going to change anything. The doctor's advice, like before your doctor sees your genetic test. And it'll be the same as after he sees your genetic test or if he didn't see your genetic test in the first place. So nothing's going to change, really. You're still going to have to do the same things to prevent a disorder from occurring than if you didn't know in the first place. Hmm. I, I'm going yeah. to throw a spanner in the works there. Um, yeah. <laughs> because I, I have had my genetics tested with 23andMe. Um, and 
I've I found um, you know I've got a couple of I put the data through a couple of different uh, programs, so I've got a fairly good understanding. Um, well, as we don't really know much about genes, especially <laughs> reading the, the notes from the show. We know nothing about genes, but in 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 what little we do know, I have a little bit of an idea of what might be going on with my genes. Um, and so there were a couple of interesting associations that I could make. Um, for instance, there was a particular gene. Uh, I spoke about it in another show. It's called monoamine oxidase A. And so it basically can affect the levels of neurotransmitters in the brain and it can predispose someone. Or there's a sort of causal, maybe not causal link, but a correlational link between this gene and certain aggressive behaviors. Um, and I know that if I'm running on, you know, if I'm eating poorly, if I'm low on sleep or if I'm particularly stressed, I have a very strong tendency to become aggressive. Um, there are also there were also a couple of other genes which sort of tick some boxes for me or, or, or were interesting. Um, and so <clears throat> I would agree that I think that looking at a specific gene um to 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 gain information about whether you are going to get a disease i think that's that's kind of nonsense i don't think anyone can predict whether some that is going to happen or not uh, i think it's interesting to know whether you might be predisposed towards a functional mm. deficiency though for instance i i'll just give my own experience because that's all i can give um i have something called the mthfr gene mutation so this is really you know it's talked about all the time in sort of alternative health these days but what it basically means is that if i don't eat enough folate then i may have um i may become functionally insufficient in folate okay and it means that i might have to do a little bit more work to eat some more folate and as it turns out i naturally have cravings for folate containing foods i never mm. understood that uh, my mum does as well and it's generally it comes from the the mother's side the mthfr does um and so she craves folate rich foods whereas someone that i live with doesn't crave folate rich foods and there's a good chance that they don't have the gene so i guess what i'm trying to say is that you can get some information from it but it's not to place too much importance onto that information if that makes sense yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. no, i are think you the, that... are you the only person in the world that gets cravings for broccoli <laughs> well it's not special broccoli K. it's lettuce uh, <laughs> what about <laughs> special k do you get cravings for special k <laughs> i'm sorry yeah David, I cut I you especially off, like special k there folic acid <laughs> the the uh, synthetic stuff yeah i like that yeah that's better <laughs> yeah i think uh i think that you make a good point elliot and i think that um the, the fact of the matter is, I mean, you do see that some diseases do seem to run in familial lines, right? Like it's like, you know, there is, even before any of this genetic testing or anything like that, like people had an idea that if your father died of this, then there's a chance that you will as well. Or, you know, if they, they had a, a specific disease that, that you might have a better uh, chance of getting that. Um, but I think the problem is that when, that they aren't taking any of the other factors into account. So, I mean, this brings up the whole thing of epigenetics. You know, the idea that you've got this genetic blueprint, but that isn't necessarily, it, it isn't necessarily going to say which genes are activated and which are not. You know, some genes might remain dormant. 
And the epigenetic factors are kind of like what rides on top of the genetic structure to determine which ones are going to be active and which ones are not. And a lot of the things that are um, determining whether or not the epigenetic factors are going to activate these genes have to do with the environment. So what you're exposed to, um, the emotional environment that you're in. Um, so all of these different factors can kind of come into play. And I think that um, a lot of times maybe you see these things running in familial lines, not just because the gene is there, but also because the people are living in a very similar environment. You know, you get, uh, you've grown up in this particular environment. A lot of the times the habits that are formed in childhood when you are in that family continue over. Um, the foods that you like to eat, you know, your mom's particular recipe for this, um, those things can also, I think, have an effect. So it's a very, it's a very complicated picture. Yeah, I think that that's kind of the salient point that we're trying to make, right, is that it's the, it's another case of extremes and it really is a, a balance, but it's a balance that we don't fully understand. Mm. It's too complicated. And it's like there's a bunch of people running around mm. saying that they know what's going on and a lot of people are saying, no, we don't really understand it yet. We want to. We understand that genes do affect propensity to disease, uh, mm-hmm. you know, but that's not the whole picture. Yeah. Right? Exactly. So I think that's kind of the main thing. But, uh, Elliot, what you were talking about was, was very interesting. Um, noticed uh, similar things, and I, I haven't done the test, but I've noticed certain cravings that I have when I'm in different states that I'm curious if it's tied to something like that. Um, like for instance, uh, I generally crave like, uh, tomatoey stuff, but according to mm. my blood type diet, like I'm a negative and I tried to do the whole, mm. like what, what's the guy's name? Diodario or some of the blood type diet D- years ago. Dadamo. Dadamo. Yeah. And in there it said that I'm allergic to nightshades. Well, I've since discovered that that is true. I mean, if I eat raw bell peppers, my stomach goes nuts. Tomatoes mm. are a little bit less so, and even less so if they're cooked. But I still have this craving for that, like oh, acidic that's... kind of flavor. So that might come from somewhere else. You know, it's it's a curiosity. It happens to me as well with chocolate. You know, I used huh. to eat chocolate every single day of my life, and I did I did like IgG antibodies for food intolerance, and cocoa was there. <laughs> oh, allergic to chocolate. <laughs> No. Yeah, that sucks. I have a similar thing with uh, cheese, too. Like, uh, our listeners may be horrified to hear this, but I recently actually quit dairy 100%. <laughs> um, whereas I've been kind of, like, dipping into it here and there, right? Um, and I'm full transparency. I love cream. Absolutely mm. love it. And cheese. Oh, my God. It's amazing. But uh, once, I, once I quit, after, I don't know, two weeks, I didn't even think about it. And I was actually shocked at how I didn't think about it because I had craved it so hard before. But then there are mm-hmm. other things that when I haven't eaten them for six months, I still have this craving that comes up. So what Elliot said is making me curious now about the whole, you know, the connection to deficiencies and cravings and things like that. Mm-hmm. I think it would be interesting to learn your genetic makeup just for yeah. information or shits and giggles or whatever, if you're into that kind of thing. But to use that information like Angelina Jolie to make such a drastic decision yeah. that cannot be reversed. That's where I have a problem with it. I agree. Yeah. I mean, if, yeah. if she completely didn't take into the, into account the whole idea of epigenetics, mm-hmm. 
you know, that maybe if she changed uh, her environment, I mean, well, she didn't even have any kind of diagnosis or anything. So it's just crazy altogether. But, you know, suppose that she did. I mean, <clears throat> the idea that that means that you're doomed, right? Yeah. And that you can't do anything about it. It's just, it, it's crazy because you could completely shift your environment and possibly those genes would never get activated at all. Yeah. It's it's disempowering on the on the one hand, but I think it's also um, it's uh, partly perhaps down to a comfort thing uh, for people. They don't uh, they sort of shy away, tend to shy away from the idea of changing their lives and uh, exerting effort and and you know mm. um, essentially making big changes in their lifestyle um, to to avert a particular outcome. We, you take away that individual's choice when you take away the idea that we have any influence on that and everything is determined by genetics mm -hmm. then it, it takes the responsibility of people and i think yeah i think yeah. some people kind of like that mm -hmm. yeah yeah i think so too yeah i wonder uh, maybe to help kind of clarify the topic a little bit for our listeners and for me too because this is something that's like you know it's pretty complex and it's a heady thing to talk about but uh one of the articles we were talking about or looking at before the show the dark side of wheat new perspectives on celiac uh mm -hmm. and that that is kind of interesting where you know celiac is commonly misunderstood to be genetic genetically caused um but this paragraph that was interesting so despite common misconceptions mono monogenic diseases or diseases that result from errors in the nucleotide sequence of a single gene are exceedingly rare. Perhaps only 1% of all diseases fall within this category. The celiac disease is not one of them. Uh, following the completion of the Human Genome Project in 2003, it is no longer accurate to say that our genes cause quote-unquote disease any more than it is accurate to say that DNA is sufficient to account for all the proteins in our body. So I thought that that was kind of an interesting quote and uh, it um, perhaps is that extreme on the side of the argument that genes don't cause disease, but they influence the propensity for disease. Mm. Right? Would that be more accurate? But then, what you know, what you said about epigenetics too, it just throws a huge wrench in the works. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's the case. Um, yeah, but I mean, it's more like it, it's more like like a. a there's that blueprint there. Well, actually, one of the articles we read gave a, an interesting analogy. They said if you if it's like it's kind of like a uh, a movie, right? So if um, the script is kind of like the genes, then the epigenetics are kind of like the director, and the director, although they're working from the script, is can constantly be making changes and like you know saying, well, don't say this line this way, say it that way. You know, let's change the angle of the scene, let's change the dialogue a bit. Let you know so. You know, there, there, there's just, it's not a, a complete 100% determinism, I guess is what it is. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. And then a lot of times okay. I question if these researchers really know what they're looking at. Because there's so much that yeah. is not known about DNA genes. There's knowns That's and true. there are unknown knowns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like known unknowns, knowns. unknown unknowns. Rumsfeld would say. So <laughs> they jump through all these hoops and they have all these headlines saying that this gene causes that and that gene causes this. 
but really they don't know and they try to explain away their lack of findings by citing something called genetic dark matter, whatever that is. Or really? Hidden, yeah, hidden genetic variation, <laughs> whatever that means. Basically, it just means we don't know. We're going to explain why genes don't cause all the diseases or why we can't find that in the studies that we conduct. So they just come up with this genetic dark matter. And, and apparently, I, way. and actually, like, some uh, some research is pointing out that just 1% of the genome encode for proteins. Mm-hmm. That's 1%. it, like, over, 1%, yes. And uh, basically, you know... Uh, the rest, it's like young DNA, which it's not young anymore. Like it yeah. actually has, like everybody's so excited to learn about what it actually does. But and yeah, there's research pointing out that it regulates the the genes that do code for proteins. But was that all the story? Some you yeah. know, apparently it has like viral properties. Like it's hmm. uh. It behaves like a virus or it's just basically like viral genes, you know, this young DNA, you know, it's a, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty fascinating, but it also kind of like, oh, yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I, I think the, the whole thing about the fact, like how little is actually known is actually kind of eye-opening because that is not the way that it gets portrayed in the press. And the way that, you know, the scientists themselves are often trying to portray it, you know, it's kind of like, oh, we know how this works. I mean, I I think specifically about the whole GMO thing, right? Like they they act like they know exactly what they're doing when they're um, making these genetic changes. But I mean, everything from the process itself to how inexact it is to the unknown effects of what they're messing with. is just it's just mind boggling. It really is like they don't they don't know what they're doing. It's like the science is so young and like not enough is known about it to know how to begin tampering with it or at least begin tampering with it and then letting it out into the, uh, into the environment. And you know, it's, it's, it's really it, crazy. Not, not tracking it. it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it could be generations later yeah. that you find the mutations. <laughs> it's really crazy. It almost feels like this is like a, I mean, I hesitate to say the word pointless because no field of study is truly pointless, <laughs> right? But uh, it's like, so we've talked plenty about how inflammation is at the root of many diseases, if not all, if mm. not the root. But at, at the very least, it's at the root of most diseases. And so I think then backtracking that and looking at what causes inflammation and eliminating that from your life. Uh, if you do have, say, uh, whatever, 10 to 15% percent chance of X disease because of your genes, that would imagine that by being very careful about how you take care of your body, you could lower that. Who knows yeah. how much? You know what I mean? But it's got to, it can't just be like a static number that no matter what yeah. you do, you have this percentage of chance. It I mean, it's just mo- not logical make- that it would work that way. Yeah, it should make people more curious about their environment. For example, if we had the same genes, like, say, 300 years ago, so why 300 years ago autism didn't exist, but it exists now, and it's mm. skyrocketing, and everybody's going to get it. Well, I'm exaggerating, but basically, yeah. Mm. It's to make yeah. them start, like, one in two boys or, you know. 
So what mm-hmm. is happening to the environment? You know, if we have the same genes, you know, like <laughs> yeah. Yeah, completely. Well, I think, I mean, it's a kind of a no-brainer statement that our genes are not meant to handle the level of pollution that we're living in. Mm. Right? And, and yeah. chemical... Or, or is it that that's just... A, is it that that's just like a natural way of coping? You know, sure. they, uh, you know, upregulate the production of specific proteins to be able to deal, like, short-term with what toxic load is being thrown at them. Sure. But... Um, I guess, I guess, ultimately, I think a lot of the time the the organism is focused on short-term survival. When it's in like a situation which is highly stressful, highly toxic, it's it seems to adapt in ways that will that will um, promote its its survival for the short term. <laughs> so, yeah. if we see autism and all of these things, you think there's there's vast quantities of toxicity that come at us every single day now compared to 300 years ago. It's like, okay, you've got a bunch of kids being born or possibly made autistic by whatever factors. Um, if it if if it is to do with the genetics, is, it, is, there, is there not some sort of intelligence, you know, some reason why the, gen, why the genes are being um, expressed in the way that they are? You know, yeah. I guess what I'm trying to say is that you know, doctors and, and research scientists, PhDs and stuff, they sort of look at the human body as if it's stupid sometimes. As, yeah. as if there's just like some error and it just makes a mistake. I tend to think that that's kind of like an, um, a, a limited viewpoint. I think that there's some sort of intelligence behind that. And if something yeah. happens, then perhaps it's for the benefit. Yeah. Uh, Sayer G actually brought up a really interesting article or uh, interesting idea in an article about uh, it might have been that same article actually Jonathan that you quoted from before about um how celiac disease might actually be an adapt- adaptation you know it's like kind of if you look at the symptoms of what somebody who has celiac disease when they're exposed to gluten it's like they get they get diarrhea and they get, it's like the body's um trying to get it out as quickly as possible so it can do the least amount of damage sure. so mm-hmm. it's kind of like that might actually be like the the genetics kind of got activated to get rid of this stuff as quickly as possible because it shouldn't be exposed to it. Yeah, if you think about it, they're actually the lucky ones because they get these symptoms while other people, like, they don't respond like that, so it affects their nervous system or silently creates havoc. So it's pretty interesting to look at it that way. Yeah. Yeah, the ability to distinguish, well, not not just the ability, but the... uh... I guess ability is the right word. The the ability to, to to actually see and understand and distinguish symptoms in your body, but also for the ability for your of your body to to give symptoms that you can see mm. uh, is really critical. So yeah, it is a like in a morbid way, they're the lucky ones. I'm sure mm. that none of them would say that. <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting yeah. with the Angelina Jolie thing too, because she just oh just snip out that gene. And what's going to be the long-term effect? Yeah. You know, as, as somebody wrote in the chat, like, especially if she doesn't change her lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So that idea that it's, that it's precise, that they could get the right gene that would, you know, actually eliminate that propensity for breast cancer. So I was sharing with Tiffany before the show, my mom died of brain cancer, but I'm not even thinking of going to have some 
parts of my brain snipped away to prevent the cancer. I mean, oh, no? <laughs> no. <laughs> you should. Preemptively. <laughs> A preemptive lobotomy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> God. No, but it is, I think it is, really, what, what Elliot has brought up is really interesting, the idea that the um, it isn't a mistake, you know, that these genes aren't there by accident. They haven't shown up, um, you know, because of, you know, I don't know, inbreeding or something like that. Like that they, they're actually, is, it, it, there's a reason behind it, that, that it manifests in such a way. I think I remember hearing something about, um, I don't know if it was sickle cell anemia or, or something like that, but it actually confers a resistance to uh, malaria. Maybe it wasn't sickle cell anemia. It might have been something no, else. I think it is. It is. Oh, it is. Yeah, okay. It is. Yeah. So, so yeah, like it, it kind of makes sense then that there would be this kind of genetic predisposition to people from like, you know, areas that are um, kind of overrun with malaria that they, there would be this kind of genetic um, ability to kind of circumvent that. But unfortunately it kind of has this, this other kind of negative effect. Yeah, I, it is weird how like I'm, an idea is forming in my head about how we interact with the planet and you know the way that uh, those things might happen. Like it's kind of like our biology is taking over for us and saying we're going to do this thing, uh, but mm-hmm. we also how do I say this? We think of it in a different way. Like we think of ourselves as not being natural. Uh, I don't know if that's necessarily true across the board, but when you think about when you say nature and human or civilization culture is not nature, but there's an argument Mm -hmm. to be made. I think that humans are part of the natural world and things that we make are also part of the natural world. So the plutonium mine down the street is natural uh, in a very weird way. Um, (laughs) You know, so yeah. (laughs) And so, but, but parts of the natural world are not supposed to come into contact with each other. Certain, you know, certain aspects of it. And we force those aspects into contact with each other. So we're a part of nature, but we have learned and are now able to manipulate our environment. And then we're getting the repercussions of that. Our biology is saying, oh, you want to change things? Well, we're going to, you know, now we got to catch up and it might go wrong. You know, we haven't had a chance to troubleshoot this new situation. (laughs) So yeah, we can stop malaria, but you're going to get sickle cell anemia. So it's just interesting how we kind of play with the environment and, uh, you know, we see our, maybe it's a, a, you know, religious slash kind of ego thing where we're the caretakers of the planet. We're not doing very good, but, um, no. you well, know, we have that to separation. People wanting easy solutions too, like sh- that Angelina Jolie represents that. Oh, well, that's an easy solution yeah. Yeah. instead of all the nuance. She mutilated all her body. Oh, that's a heck of a solution. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah. I'm not even convinced it is a solution. You know, it's no, like, I mean, uh, uh, Go ahead, Elliot. Oh, I was just going to add that a woman before menopause taking out her ovaries. I mean, seriously, right. like, it, I mean, how can any doctor do that responsibly? The ovaries are so damn important for your hormone production. I mean, seriously, I would say that you're probably predisposing them to cancer. You're probably increasing the risk by taking out the bloody ovaries. It's completely ludicrous. I mean, those doctors should be locked up. You know what I mean? They've they've got no brain. Much, much more popular, though, for women who have any sort of issues to have 
the uterus and the ovaries removed without question, hmm. which seems very scary. Yeah. Well, this might lead us into talking about uh, CRISPR. Um, mm. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, um, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have heard of it. Uh, but if you haven't, CRISPR is a gene editing technology that is now being experimented with, played with. Um, they've done a number of things, you know, in tests uh, with animals. And now there's a large debate about when it's going to start being utilized uh, in humans. And I think uh, if... Now, I know not everybody watches all the TV shows in the world, but on Amazon, there's a show called Orphan Black. If anybody's mm. seen that, in that yeah. show, there's a group of people that genetically modify themselves to, like, you know, play with their biology. And that's where that's where I think this is going. Uh, totally. As soon as that's available, and even if it costs, like, a reasonable amount, like, you know, you could come up with $20,000 in five years, something like that where you're going to get horns, you know, or, or, um, <laughs> or spikes wings. on your spine or more something muscle. like, you know, yeah, or wings. A spiky yeah, tail. Yep. Ah. Yeah, or you're a bodybuilder, so you're going to turn all your muscles into solid rock, you know, like it, stuff like that. It's, humanity is going to look so strange if we make it that far. Uh, I, really think it's going, I don't think that's unreasonable. supposed to be the year of CRISPR technology. Well, there mm-hmm. was this man, a chef from Utah. I think his name is Brian Madu, and I think it was back in November that he underwent a gene editing session or two. He has something called Hunter syndrome, and it's a syndrome where he lacks the enzymes to break down certain carbohydrates, and he has all of these health issues because of that. So they inserted billions of copies of the correct gene. I don't understand this fully. I don't think the scientists do either, but that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) They inserted billions of copies of a correct gene through an IV into some DNA, and they cut it up with molecular scissors. And the idea was that the new gene will travel to this guy's liver, and the DNA will snip it and fix the gene in some way, I guess that's how it's supposed to work. So they said that they might notice something within like a month to three months. But I was trying Mm. to find like some outcomes of how is this guy doing now? And of course, can't find anything. But there were just hundreds and hundreds of articles all saying the same thing about how this guy underwent this gene editing and how this is the, the future of medicine. And isn't this so fantastic? And wow, it's great. But I'm wondering if we'll ever hear any follow-up on this guy and if it actually yeah. worked and if there were actually any unknown effects that the doctors weren't expecting. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, we certainly are tickling the the uh, biological dragon's belly. That was a weird thing to say. But <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> because we're removing consequences. As we go, that's what this whole thing is about. It's about removing consequences. So you can do whatever the hell you want. You'll be fine. In fact, you'll be in mm. perfect health. You're going to look better than Brad Pitt in Fight Club. And you can do whatever you want. <laughs> and you're going to live for 250 years. 
Um, I feel like when we reach that point and humanity has by hook or crook taken complete power over their mortality, then like the world is just going to explode and we'll be done. We'll be done. <laughs> mm. um, Does this actually you know, even work? Yeah. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't know if that's even really possible, but I think that's what we're trying to do. That's my point is we're trying to remove consequences, essentially a giant egoistic impulse. Mm. You well, know, it's done in the name of health. The scientists make it seem like it's completely possible and that this CRISPR technology is totally accurate. If they're aiming at a specific gene, they're going to get that specific gene, let alone that there's research out there that there can be like sites that they hit that differ by as many as five nucleotides from the intended target. Yeah. So uh, how can they... <laughs> They don't know exactly where they're hitting, so they hit yeah. someplace yeah. else, and it can have all these repercussions. Yeah. So it could basically go five nucleotides away from the target center and, you know, hit a gene which codes for a protein which allows ions to pump into the heart or to pump out yeah. the heart, and then <laughs> the person could essentially stop making cells which, which allow his heart to function properly. He could go get, go get a heart attack a couple of years later. You know what I mean? Yeah. Sure. It's just unbelievable did. that they, think <laughs> they can be this precise. Yeah. That yeah. they know yeah. enough about what they're doing. Yeah. Well, um, there was one headline that said that uh, CRISPR gene editing can introduce hundreds of unintended mutations in the genome. <laughs> hundreds. <laughs> yeah, but also it was published recently this month, you know, 2018, you know, that apparently it doesn't quite work for a lot of people because this CRISPR technology comes from bacteria, from two bacteria that everybody has, Staphylococcus aureus, Streptococcus pyogenes. And most people are immune to these bacteria. So if your immune system is going to shut off all this CRISPR technology, then nothing happens. Hmm. <laughs> That's a blessing in disguise. Hmm. But but also, can't they, um, can't they use CRISPR in like IVF treatments, like in test tube babies and things. Yeah, that's sure. what they're that's recommended what it's done. to do. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, I heard that application discussed briefly, and it was it was that like yeah, you you get a um, a test of your genes done before you conceive, uh, and then when the child is born, you can say oh they're predisposed to X, Y, and Z, so we'll CRISPR that out, and we have a good kid. I think CRISPR wow. is actually before. I think they do it to the embryo. Oh yeah. Um, I think the thing where they're actually doing live like gene editing in like an adult or even like a child or a, a baby is is something different. And uh, I don't I don't know much about it, but the CRISPR thing, as my understanding is that they're actually doing it to embryos. So it's kind of like mm -hmm. if if you do a genetic test, uh, you know, before conception and say, well, there's a predisposition to this. You want us to do a little uh, tinkering, um, make your baby blue eyed even though yeah. it won't be otherwise and, you know, give it a big brain and all this other kind of stuff. Or you can make, yeah. you can make your baby transgender because that's pretty uh, popular right now. So Sure. Or farmers, you can just make all your kids like seven-foot Norwegians. <laughs> exactly. You know? Super kids. Yeah. Yeah, the whole designer yeah. baby thing is like one thing that a lot of people, a lot of uh, people have been kind of worried about and like you see some press on that of people like expressing this kind of concern that it will lead to this idea of designer babies where you can kind of like pick your baby's traits 
you know, get rid of all its potential diseases and things like that. Well, I can't see how it wouldn't, you know, unless there is kind of like legislation kind of put out that says, no, we're not going to go down this road. We're not going to do this. This is not a good idea. Um, which is unlikely because people are stupid. Well, even if there was legislation to say you can't do that, they'll probably do it anyway. And they probably already are doing it and we just don't know about it. Yeah. Well, like black ops doing it in food Mm -hmm. and crops. I mean, for our uh, listeners who are interested, uh, we've carried quite a few of Jonathan Lantham's work on SOT and he's, written a lot about this uh, CRISPR technology and the, you know, the myths of precise gene editing. And he basically says the hubris is alarming and you can even read it in publications. So he was saying in Nature magazine in 2015, the headline read super muscly pigs created by small genetic tweak, (laughs) which isn't really the case. And then yeah. another one, a New York Times opinion section offered tweaking genes to save a species. So people are focused on this idea of it being this perfect, precise, oh, we'll just go in and do this. But he's saying there's all these myths associated with it, and you just don't know the outcome mm-hmm. of what's going to happen. I mean, like what Gabby was saying about people being immune. I mean, maybe I'm wrong and I'm not a scientist, but... Using bacteria like staph and strep in your genes doesn't seem like a very good idea. <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I don't know if anybody's ever had staph, but it can kill you quickly. Yeah. And that yeah. the strep can can become a flesh-eating bacteria. So maybe you have no longer the breast cancer gene, but now your skin is being eaten off. I, I don't know. Am I, am I reaching Yeah. There? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> totally. Well, there's definitely going to be a time where, where people do stupid things. They do that with everything. Like, mm-hmm. Doug, when you said designer babies, my imagination went another way with it. Like, you know, rappers who get their kids with, like, diamonds for teeth you know, <laughs> and stuff like that. Like, they're not that that's going to happen, but they're going to want that. I promise somebody's going to ask for that. <laughs> you know. But in the, in, the medical, in the medical research, there is contradictory information, like, a decade or so ago, there was gene therapy research for a very rare disease, and they introduced like a tweak gene to fix the mutation in the in the children's uh, body. And yes, it corrected it, but then the children got leukemia because there was this yeah. unpredicted uh-huh. effect on the on the lymphocytes or something crazy. Wow, that was crazy. Mm. That, on the other so that hand, gets me- yeah. Tell- Oh, I'm sorry. I just no. I mean, I was going to react in anger to what you said. I mean, that gets my that gets me boiling. I mean, that that you these you know that you give a child cancer because pardon my French, you're fucking around. Mm. Yeah. You know, and the yeah. and the outcome is a child gets cancer and dies. That's that's pure evil. I mean, it's not just carelessness. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah, that's the the stories we're not hearing more often because there is a lot of gene therapy research done on medical you know for medical purposes. The only promising thing that I read recently, uh, it's uh, the Lorenzo's oil disease. That's from the movie Lorenzo Oil. I think it's from the 80s, if I'm not, mm-hmm. if, I'm, if I'm remembering correctly. And that's a genetic disease. Uh, they don't produce a fat that covers the nerves, so they get dementia very early on, and they and they die very quickly. So they tweak the HIV virus. They it, deactivated the HIV virus, but they use it as a carrier 
for a gene to fix the mutation. And they use HIV because it's the only virus or one of the few that has the ability to penetrate stem cells. And they needed to affect stem cells, you know. But the children, you know, it, it had good results. And they reproduced the study with like 27 children with Lorenzo's oil disease or something. And it went quite well, like miraculously well for most of them. Like one died, but from the progression of the disease, because it was like kind of too late. And the other one, I don't remember. But the rest are doing relatively fine. So that's the only, yeah. Yeah, it's frustrating, man. I mean, we find ourselves in a, a very, very complex causal relationship with everything around us. And I don't even know if there's really a case where you could nail it down. I mean, I'm sure diagnosticians would disagree because there, there is a process by which you can diagnose a condition, but it's like, it's so complex. I mean, I, I, I think I have an idea of what the, what the main causes are, which we talk about and we all kind of agree about like, uh, toxicity, environment and pollution, the increase in electromagnetic uh, waves throughout our environment, all of these things, uh, diet, 100%, you know, all of these things contributing to that. But when you start getting down to the nitty gritty and they're trying to treat very specific diseases, I feel like, like as a programmer, this happens to me when I'm working on code, you get tunnel vision and you're going for one function and you think that's the problem and you're going to spend eight hours trying to fix that, but it's not the problem. And that's what they're mm. doing with this. Well, that coming back to that precision equals control idea, and I'm just going to read what Jonathan Lantham writes here because it's a really good example. He said, suppose as a Chinese speaker, I were to precisely remove from Chinese text one character, one line, or one page. I would have 100% precision, but zero control over the change in the meaning. Precision, therefore, is only as useful as understanding that underlines it, and surely no DNA biologist would propose we understand DNA, or else why else why would we be studying it? Mm -hmm. So yeah, maybe they yeah. can maybe precisely remove that, but the larger context of what happens is completely unknown. And yeah. and also, I find like sometimes I try to take a thirty thousand foot view of, of of this kind of thing, and okay, so. We understand that there are probably a lot more people getting sick, um, especially children getting sick, the, like now, than there were at a certain point in the past. Or let's just say they're, they're dying from different diseases. They're dying from different diseases, yeah? Mm. But I keep coming back to the question of who are we to try and play God? You know, who are we to say that there are a certain amount of children or a certain amount of people who should really not live? You, you know what I'm saying? The fact that they've come into the world with such effed up genetics, such effed up systems, they would naturally have died. And hmm. so you think if you've got a situation, I mean, this uh, this argument could be made for antibiotics. When you introduce antibiotics... Um, you start preserving the lives of all of the frail, the people who would mm. ordinarily have died out, and so they go on to reproduce, and a few generations down the line, you've got a bunch of people who are really sick. Do you know what I mean? Mm. They're not really designed to live in the world. And mm. coupled with the... I, I mean, I don't want to go into sort of like eugenics territory here, <laughs> but I tend to... I think, to, yeah, but I tend to think that... 
that, you know, Mother Nature knows who it wants to keep. It knows how it's going to thrive. Evolution knows how to, how to do it itself. But when we step in and try to preserve all life, it's like, well, naturally you're going to have a bunch of sick people these days because we've, we've done all of these things to preserve as much life as possible without sort of understanding the possible philosophical or sort of, um, underlying uh, message that nature tries to give us. Does you, do you know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's a it's an evolutionary argument, I think, and it but it makes it, it's certainly slippery ground. I mean, you mentioned eugenics, but it's like you, you have to you have to go on that slippery ground to talk about it. You know. Uh, but he, go ahead, Gabby. I'm sorry. The, here's the peculiar thing. I mean, the top funders for this kind of research is not even to preserve life. It's to destroy it, you know. Yeah. It's the Department of Defense, you know, yeah. um, the U.S. Military's Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, mm -hmm. um, and uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation have poured like several hundred million dollars into gene drive research mm -hmm. just in the last two years. That actually people at the United Nations, they're pretty scared about it. They're reviewing, you know, what's going on here, you know. It's like, mm -hmm. I mean. <laughs> yeah, well, it, sound, it sounds fancy, right? I mean, you as as a quote-unquote uh, American citizen, I, you know, I'm playing devil's advocate here, would, would be proud that my government is coming up with ways to defend me, the Department of Defense. <laughs> but when you understand that it was called the War Department and they changed it to the Department of Defense because people like defense better than war, <laughs> then you can understand where the motivations for these kind of research comes from. Yeah. So yeah. I know that's kind of a no-brainer, but yeah, I think, Gabby, you're totally right, you know, that you have to look at where the research is actually coming from. And it's very well funded. I mean, this is big yeah. business, and yeah. big pharma's looking into all of this, and they want to charge like hundreds of thousands of dollars for a single genetic treatment that nobody knows if it's going to work or not. But my question is, is, what is the end result? Like, there has to be people at the top who know that one gene does not cause one disease, yet mm -hmm. they are still pumping all this money into genetic research. But why? <laughs> what are they going to do with it? Well, super soldiers. You want to hear the tin tinfoil hat theory? Yes. Yep. Well, a little bit, a little while ago, um, Putin came forward saying that um, somebody is collecting uh, Russian genetic material, like genes from, from Russians. Mm -hmm. And apparently there's been quite a bit um, written about a secret kind of, uh, uh, what's the word, ethnic-specific weapons. So the idea that you can target a specific ethnicity with something like a disease or a condition or something along those lines. So why would DARPA be putting all this money into uh, these different technologies? Well, probably because they want to weaponize it. Yeah. So, yeah. and now I'll take yeah. off my tinfoil hat and go back. <laughs> well, I'll put it's not, your tinfoil hat onto my head. <laughs> Please, I hope it fits. All of this research is being you know, carried out under the guise of helping people and solving specific health problems when really they're just trying to kill us all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, interesting well, that, with that gene drive technology, because of which Gabby mentioned earlier, like a gene drive is like yet another 
application of of this kind of genetic messing around. And I don't know a lot about it, but it has something to do with being able to drive a specific genetic mutation through a population. So what the, the example they give a lot is the mosquito mosquitoes that are able to carry malaria. And what they do is they put some kind of mutation in so that it makes it so they can't carry um, malaria anymore. Or maybe it just kills them. I'm not exactly sure. But then they drive that through the entire population and they do it in a way that that genetic material will keep on getting passed on to future generations to make sure that this genetic material is what kind of dominates. So, yeah, I mean, you know, they use the example of mosquitoes with malaria because everybody's like, oh, yes, we should cure malaria or get rid of malaria. But, I mean, there are all kinds of nefarious um, applications of that that you could think of if you just started brainstorming for like 10 minutes. So, yeah, I think I, th- I think you're right. I think that they they do it on a guise of this is how we're. I mean, this is what they did with GMOs, right? This is how we're going to save the world with this technology. But do they actually apply it that way? No, they don't. Yeah, well, and that's it's moving uh, in that it, direction too because now they are using this CRISPR nine technology on food, and it doesn't have to be regulated because they're sh- claiming that they're not actually adding any foreign DNA. They're just mm. snipping it out. <laughs> But then that makes the DNA that they're taking it from or snipping it out of foreign. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That induces foreignness. Yeah, we don't like foreigners. <laughs> That's, That's okay. It. They now just want. <laughs> now they're going to start using RNA-based CRISPR because it won't result in permanent changes to. Your genetic makeup, like so, you're only a little screwed up. Yes, (laughs) or temporarily screwed up. (laughs) It's not me; it's my genes. (laughs) I think, like with a lot of things that are going on today, we have to be very suspicious of any group of people who claim to want to end suffering in one way Mm -hmm. or the other, because suffering is a part of life, and that's how you learn things. But we can see this, too, with, like, uh, the transgender thing or the gender-neutral thing or the feminism thing. They want to ease all the suffering that people are supposedly going through. That's Mm -hmm. what they say. But, like, with the, the feminism thing, radical feminism, they want to break up the family. So with the easing of certain genetic disorders or what they think are genetic disorders. They want to ease the suffering of that, but what do they want to break up? Yeah, it's nobody's got a clear picture of what they want. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, these groups, they're so contradictory. I mean, a, a progressive uh, liberal would just as soon become a eugenicist if you give them the right conditions <laughs> to talk about it, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think I, w- I wanted to make a point about, Doug, what you said about the genetic-specific weapons. Because I think a lot of people would think, like, no, they wouldn't do that. Like, yeah, I know that, you know, I know that they bomb a lot of countries. The military does, and, you know, they kill innocent people. I'm doing devil's advocate thing again. Like, I know, I know they do all this <laughs> stuff. But they wouldn't come up with a weapon that could wipe out the African continent or, or you know, South America or something like that, would they? Well, maybe not necessarily with that intention, but they will do a, uh, a game scenario where that's the intention. They always, always do that. Um, 
I guarantee you they have a scenario on hand about what it takes logistically, budget-wise, everything involved in destroying Yemen, uh, mm. wipe it off the planet. They have that in their file cabinet. You know, they have what it would take to move all of the the citizens of Brazil to Texas. They game these scenarios out in case they happen, and they game out the weirdest stuff you can possibly imagine. So mm. I'm sure that they've gamed out what you know it would take to. Uh, wipe out a certain race of people that's in the books it doesn't mean necessarily they're going to do it but i'm saying don't have any illusions about that they won't do this because they're just too good or they wouldn't mess with it or wouldn't think about it they think about everything and mm -hmm. i don't and that's not like a tinfoil hat perspective that's just how the military works because they have a hundred or 1.8 billion dollars every 24 hours is their budget <laughs> just wrap your head around that for a minute <laughs> it's wild you can do anything you want unlimited budget wow. essentially so <laughs> yeah it really is uh it really is crazy so i just wanted to make that point about you know who these people are and what their intentions are you know they it would be it would be a logistic disaster to actually do that but they promise that they've thought about it mm. so anyway <laughs> it's a it's a dark world you know uh and i yeah. think back to what we're talking about this is all like it's leaning towards or at least, or, or it is an egoistic impulse masked under the guise of health. And at what point are we uh, trying to, you know, legitimately keep ourselves healthy versus uh, trying to preserve our lives at all costs, because that's the only thing that matters and there should be no suffering or death, mm -hmm. you know, and it like Elliot, what you said about the evolutionary perspective, I think is legitimate. I mean, if you look at, you know, uh, a, a group of people grow up a around tigers tigers eat people after a hundred years or so uh the slow people are going to get eaten and the ones that survive know how to run fast that's how evolution mm -hmm. works you know mm -hmm. and it, it so it sounds you can really easily paint that as eugenics when you're talking about it but a lot of it is very just practical what happens yeah. um, so this is going to happen too we have a whole new biological makeup that's coming out of the toxic age that we live in and, mm -hmm. and we have no idea what it's going to be you know scary yeah if we make it right I, I'm, I'm pessimistic yeah. beyond 20 years from now <laughs> honestly <laughs> yeah i don't yeah. even yeah, think me we'll too. Get to the point yeah. where we can have designer babies i think yeah everything's gonna no. go to crap by then no i don't think it's gonna happen well <laughs> i guess we just sit back and enjoy the show because uh we'll see <laughs> yeah. i don't know i'm so not they did have designer babies <laughs> if they did have designer babies, what would you what would you give your baby? Mm. Uh, Interesting. Theoretically speaking, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> your narcissistic point of view. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's like the, yeah, the idea of the ideal baby. That's, that's yeah. it's exactly like me. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's. I mean, that's the dark side of parenthood, right? Uh, there are many, many parents. Please don't take offense. That have children out of love, and they want to raise a human being and and help them be, you know, good in the world and have a good life. There's all that exists, but there is a dark side, and there are some parents who have kids just because they want a little meat. And this mm -hmm. is gonna. They're gonna use this technology if they can afford it for sure. Yeah, I yeah. think it's actually uh, probably more common the latter. Than yeah. the uh, former. Sure. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so I said the thing about rappers. I mean, or, or athletes. You know, I want my kid to uh, to break X records. So we're going to tweak the, uh, you know, the quads and, and the muscles and the legs, uh, so they mm. can they can have the certain thing. All of that. You know, Super better, speed. Yeah, better athletes, better thinkers. You know, increase the frontal cortex. Kid's going to change the world. All that. Um, so now I wouldn't say no to that. I'd have an increased frontal cortex. No, that raises an interesting question. Where do you draw the line on playing God? Because you think that's good, right? Mm. I'm, I'm <laughs> sincerely asking. Yeah. In all fairness, I, I wouldn't really do that, but I was just sort of fantasizing. I wouldn't mind having a bigger frontal cortex. Yeah, that's what. That's exactly what I'm saying. It does sound good, right? Uh, that is one that you might kind of think about. You know, yeah. let's say that was possible and you could afford it. You'd be like, hmm, maybe. Mm. You know, so that I think that there are lines there too with where what we think is justified and what is not. Like, is is taking ibuprofen playing God? Because how would you otherwise get that into your body? <laughs> it's a simplistic argument, but you see what I mean. It, it, there are lines, you know, so I mm. think we can all agree that creating a, a, a hybrid... Uh, athlete super mathematician child is misguided <laughs> you know because <laughs> uh super strong like, and super smart yeah. so well, let's say that you have a 30 percent say you have a 30 percent chance of increasing your frontal cortex by like 10 percent that you might go for so that's what i'm curious mm-hmm. about yeah i don't know if i'd mess with it to be perfectly honest uh, like mm-hmm. yeah i think yeah, I don't know. It's like, it does seem like there is a line crossed there. You know, once you start actually manipulating the genetic code, it's kind of like, I don't know if we were supposed to do this. Like, I, you know, supposed to, then that gets, brings up a whole thing. I mean, you know, what's, what's determined, what's not. It's, it just kind of like seems like there's, there's a line there that you probably don't want to cross. And like, I guess maybe if this kind of stuff had like a, a kind of a proven track record and the science was actually precise and they did know what all the consequences of it are, then it's kind of like a different a different mm-hmm. game. Whereas at the current state, you know, if they came out with before, like you know, tomorrow, if they said, "Oh, we've got this new thing," you t- you get a shot, it changes your um, genetics and you get a bigger frontal cortex. I would be like, no, absolutely <laughs> not. That is yeah. not a good idea. Yeah, it, that is a good. It's a good question though, because say ten, fifteen years ago, uh, if we were having this conversation um, and we were talking about stem cell research mm-hmm. and stem cell therapy, we would, you know, I, w- I would probably say the same thing as Doug back then. Whereas mm-hmm. now, with all of the research that's been done on it, I would decide to have that if I had a condition that I thought would benefit from stem cell therapy. I still think and that's that, different. That is kind of playing. In, in what way? Well, it's not like it's it, it, it's it's kind of like I was talking about. There's that line, right? That there there's a line that I don't think that we should cross. That involves like messing with the actual genetic, genetic, whatever the genes. Not messing with that. Whereas stem cells is kind of like just taking some stuff from another part of you that you're producing anyway and putting it into you so that it'll have a beneficial effect. I don't necessarily think that the, I I. I to me, that doesn't seem like the same thing. It kind of seems like you're not actually crossing that line of messing with things and playing God. Sure, that's maybe. A, maybe I, mean, I'm mm. thinking, I don't know. Maybe no, that's no. I guess that makes yeah. sense. That you're makes giving sense. the body something to work with rather than 
forcibly altering it. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, I, I we only have so. to see yeah. it in nature and see the effects of GMOs in nature and our environment. Mm-hmm. That will that, yeah. that gives us food yeah. for thought. You know, do we want to really good... do that to ourselves? That's that's a and that's a good analogy, really, because with the the genetic modification, it's like crossbreeding. We've been doing that for hundreds of years, right? And and I don't really see a problem with that. You might end up with a species that isn't so good because you tried to breed in a, a certain specific trait and it didn't work out so well. There was consequences, but it's like it, it's still with staying within the blueprint, right? It's like things that you're not yeah, actually getting in there and rewriting the genetic code. Whereas with genetic modification, it's like there is a very serious line that's being crossed there. And especially when people don't know what they're doing, which is clear from the GMO research. Like, they have no idea. They don't know the consequences. They don't understand. And they're releasing that into the environment. So then, you know, and it's like you can't pull that back in. That's gone. That's like, yeah. you know, it's, it's there. I, I agree. It's kind of like a game of chess. And, you know, I, th- I think this is an okay analogy. You're playing a game of chess. And there are certain set rules that you have to follow if you are playing Mm -hmm. the game of chess. But within that game, there are thousands or if not millions of different variations of moves that you could make as long as you Mm -hmm. are playing within the rules. Whereas actually what what they're doing with this CRISPR and gene editing is like they're picking up the table and throwing it across the room. Mm -hmm. There are no rules. They're, They're breaking those fundamental rules that that yeah. that foundational principle which sort of binds everything together so it's just like yeah i mean it, I, I completely agree it's uh yeah, it's, yeah. i think that I that's think a good analogy actually it's kind of like well we're, we're going to tweak it so that now the king can move like the queen does well i mean essentially you're just breaking the game right like that, it doesn't work anymore it's not going to work like it, it's it's a completely different game so yeah i, I mean i think that is a good analogy Mm-hmm. Well, it's like, you know, there's a, it occurs to me there's an emotional attachment between new areas of research and the people that are doing that and the resulting work that supersedes, you know, the logic around it. So, like, <clears throat> for instance, the uh, nuclear scientists who developed the, the bomb, uh, they would go out in the desert when they were testing nuclear weapons and sleep with the bomb the night before, before it went off, because <laughs> it was like you were giving birth uh, to this thing. So you spend a night in the desert with your bomb before it goes off. But that's just one example. Um, I, but I, in my mind, I'm drawing a parallel to that between the researchers in this area. The God complex is really hard to shake when you get it. Mm-hmm. You know, And they get a taste of that power. They're going to keep doing it. They're going to justify it to hell and back. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but you know, I don't think we can rely. Uh, we can rely on logic from like a community analytical standpoint, from, not from individuals, though, for sure. Not for this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway. Well, I, we, so if you want yeah. a designer baby without crossing the line, yeah. just, you know, make sure you're a genius and then go out and nail a football player. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, conversely, you're going to have, a, you're going to have a human life act mm-hmm. like you're not a psychopath and do some research and see how you can have a healthy baby. That's really, you know, that's it. Yeah. The football player may have too many concussions on the brain. Yeah. 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 Totally. Or I mean, because it is luck of the draw, you could end up with the football player's intelligence and your athletic ability. Yeah. (laughs) 
Oh, man. All right. Well, we are coming up on our time. Let's go to uh, Zoya's uh, pet health segment for today, uh, which is uh, the opinion of a rational vegetarian on the insane ideas of vegans regarding owning pets or their diets. Uh, so let's check that out, and we'll wrap up when we come back. Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. This week I would like to touch upon the topic of common sense. It may not be a problem for those who are listening to the show, but apparently common sense is a rare commodity among those who belong to the so-called vegan community or social justice community. Lack of common sense and logic is such a problem among them that some vegans that do have brains have to make videos explaining basic things to those who apparently don't. Like, for example, why it is okay to own a pet and why they shouldn't feed meat to cats and dogs, otherwise they would have serious health issues. Now, if you listen to our shows, you know what kind of damage vegetarian or vegan diet can do to the body. So you could say that their lifestyle is the one that contributed to those grave uh, thinking errors. But then, judging their choices isn't in the scope of this segment. What I would like to share is one young, young woman's opinion on the matter, and she also happens to be vegan, where she tries to point out those uh, thinking errors. Not surprisingly, she is often being attacked. Listen up and think about this segment as an example of the depths of stupidity of the social justice community, where there is a need to make this kind of videos and explain simple facts of life to them. Here it is, and have a great weekend. Hey guys, so uh, pets, owning pets, feeding pets. Uh, this is something that I get asked about fairly frequently. In fact, I just got an email today from someone asking about it, so that's pretty cool. Uh, this will actually be split up into two separate uh, videos. This one, which will focus on ownership, pet ownership, and then the second one, which will focus on feeding pets, uh, specifically focused on feeding cats, a vegan diet. So pet ownership, I talked about this briefly in my last video, my response to the one janitor, his video, Why I Am Not a Vegan. Uh, basically that there are some vegans who believe that owning animals in any situation is unethical. Um, I think this is dogmatic and irrational, and so I wanted to talk about it. If you are adopting a pet, cat, or dog, rather than buying from a breeder, um, and you are saving it from being euthanized in a shelter, and you are bringing it into a loving home where you you know, provide for its needs, uh, obviously you are doing that animal a favor relative to the alternative the animal being killed. The animal neither knows nor cares that you own it. It has no concept of material ownership. It only cares about consequences. It only cares about how you treat it. Some argue not that ownership is directly harmful to animals, but that it may negatively impact the owner's treatment of animals via some invisible, some conscious influence. Uh, the same absurd argument is made by vegans, some vegans, uh, with regard to language, with regard to our use of words like dog and snake as human insults. In both cases, this is just speculation. There is no evidence that using dog as an insult negatively influences how we treat dogs. And there is also no evidence that owning a dog or even actually thinking of a dog as ours negatively influences how we treat dogs. Plus, and this is probably the most important point I make in the entire video, but um, making these claims 
it's not only incredibly alienating since most people think owning pets is perfectly fine and that adopting them is great and they have pets themselves, uh, but it, it likely makes the vegan movement look really silly. You know, it's one thing to tell people that animals feel too and so eating them is wrong. It's another thing to tell people that rescuing cats and dogs from imminent death and bringing them into a loving home is wrong. There's also the argument that the institution of pet ownership itself is bad, which is also irrelevant. Yes, some people abuse their pets. Are you doing that? It's much like the argument that because animals are abused in the production of eggs and dairy and ultimately killed, uh, that it has to be that way, that it's impossible to produce these products without abuse. Backyard rescue hens who are treated well and who are not just killed as soon as egg production drops um, are a great example of why blanket statements like this are not true. Just because you are capable of abusing an animal doesn't mean that you will. And while you have no control over abuses that occur commercially, having a pet and the level of care that you provide for that pet is something that you do have full control over. It's also important to note that when it comes to animals, ownership is limited. Obviously, in the eyes of the law, uh, adopting a dog is not the same as buying a table or some other inanimate object. You cannot do anything you want with the dog, but I'm pretty sure the government's not going to care what you do with the table as long as you're not like hurling it at people that might be a problem. Certain actions can result in the animal being taken away from you if you are caught and you even being fined, even put in jail. Uh, unfortunately, you know, the laws are not as, as strict as many of us would like. People are still able to uh, have their animals killed if they just don't want them anymore, as long as it's done humanely, of course, like with explosives, apparently. Point is, there are bad pet owners and there are good ones, and as long as you are one of the good ones, your participation in the institution of pet ownership is in no way condoning or enabling the behavior of the bad ones. And your refusal to participate is not going to tear down the system of animal ownership or further any kind of liberationist cause. Species and Habitat for this section, I am going to combine two separate but related arguments. The first one being that there is no relevant difference between wild animals and domesticated animals in terms of ownership. So if having one as a pet is unethical, having the other as a pet is unethical as well. And the second one, that owning a pet is unnatural. It's essentially a combination of a very common misunderstanding of speciesism, a misunderstanding that I shared as well, uh, see my video on that here, and uh, the appeal to nature fallacy. So first, equating species. Being against speciesism, anti-speciesism, does not mean blindly asserting that lions and house cats are the same, that whales and goldfish are the same. Just like being against racism doesn't mean ignoring that white people get sunburns more easily or that black people may be more prone to vitamin D deficiency. To any sensible person, there are obvious differences between a lion and a domesticated tiny house cat that suggests that it would be far more difficult to keep the former, the lion, in an apartment. When you see large cats pacing back and forth in their enclosures in zoos, this is a sign of distress from uh, confinement and, and boredom. It's really sad. Keeping these animals, keeping a 400-pound wild animal in a house or in a backyard would be even worse. It'd be an existence 
likely so miserable that euthanasia would be kinder. That's not to say that an animal's natural habitat is necessarily the best option. Many animals can actually do better in human environments than in the wild. So it's not inherently relevant what a lion or any other animal's natural habitat is. What is relevant is whether the animal has its needs met and has an engaging life that's free from inordinate stress and anxiety. Whether that means hunting and playing with a large plastic ball for engagement or living in a naturally large environment, its needs just have to be met. The animal's natural behaviors certainly can give us clues as to what those needs are, but it would be asinine to suggest that the only way those needs can be met is by nature, and it's not something that's borne out in the evidence. The bottom line is that in the case of certain animals, meeting their needs is something that even zoos struggle with. You know, independent ownership of these large, wild animals or really any wild animals should be out of the question for the vast majority of us. A domesticated cat or dog is obviously a completely different matter. It's a relationship where their needs can be met by the average person pretty easily with just a little bit of responsibility. We do need to be aware of those needs, obviously, um, and not enter into you know pet ownership blindly. It, it is a big responsibility. And yes, responsibility does mean spaying and neutering. The animal basically wakes up from a nap and has no idea that its sex organs have been removed. A puppy was likely no more invested in the idea of procreating than it is in being allowed to drive a car. Which brings me to my next point, breeding. It's easy to argue that for most common domesticated animals, being a pet is a fairly good deal for them. It's certainly quite a bit better than dying. Given this on its own, uh, it would seem that to exist as a pet uh, would be a good thing rather than to not exist at all. Uh, but that's not all there is to life. There are costs, both in terms of opportunity and direct consequences. The simplest and most well-known one is animal shelters. Excluding those wonderful people who won't adopt because they want a particular breed, let's call them pet racists, that's good. Uh, excluding them, every dog or cat that is bred means another one in an animal shelter is abandoned and euthanized. There's no argument to be made for breeding today when there are so many unwanted animals that can be adopted. But let's fast forward to a hypothetical future in which the adoption programs have been so successful, the spaying and neutering campaigns have been so successful that animal shelters are empty, that no pets, no cats or dogs are ever euthanized for not being wanted. What then? Well, what are the costs and the benefits to the world? You know, like humans, cats and dogs, they eat and they poop and they consume medical resources. But unlike humans, their contribution to society is usually pretty modest. There are exceptions, of course, like police dogs and uh, disability assistance dogs. Companion animals may also help to improve well-being and life expectancy of the sick and elderly if they aren't like tripping them, <laughs> making them break a hip with their crazy, I guess that's more of a cat thing, the crazy kind of swerve in front of you thing that they do. Relationships with pets may also be important in terms of human empathy for animals in general. There is some evidence that people who have pets are more likely to go vegetarian. It's obviously a more nuanced issue. You know, the pros aren't as clearly stacked against the cons. It may be legitimately hard to justify a pet's negative impact based on its positive impact, but it's also pretty hard to justify the claim that it's just bad for the world. Plus, there are some ways that we can help improve the equation by lessening the negative impact. You know, diet is a significant factor for us in terms 
terms of our own negative impact, and it's the same for our pets. The question is, can they be vegan? And like I said, that will be the follow-up video out very soon. So that's it for this one. Thank you so much for watching. I really hope you enjoyed it. Uh, as always, any comments or questions, put them down below. And uh, if you want to subscribe, subscribe. And that's it. Thanks again, and I will have the follow-up very soon. Animals are innocent, don't be speciesist Never use the name of an animal as an insult for a human Animals are innocent, don't be speciesist Never use the name of an animal as an insult for a human Very non-speciesist non goats, very tolerant goats <laughs> Oh god no idea. No idea. <laughs> I want to say I hope that the guy busts out laughing after he recorded that, but who knows? <laughs> that was good. Thank you, Zoya. The uh, her comment about pet racism kind of cut deep a little bit. <laughs> yep. You know what that mangy old dog? You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks, Zoya. For, make, for helping us think about our own problems. <laughs> no, that was really good. Um, <clears throat> so let's, uh, I guess let's wrap up. I don't know what else there is to say about our topic for today. Just uh, don't don't mess with your jeans. Eat right. You'll be better. Yeah. Billy Jeans is not my lover. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and with that, no better outro. Have a good weekend, everybody. We'll be back next week. Be sure to go to radio.sot.net on Sunday at noon Eastern time. So we'll see you next week. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.